You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Good morning, church family. If you have a Bible with you, if you will make your way to the letter of Galatians. We have been making our way through this letter for some time now. This morning we're in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week. So we're in Galatians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 21 and we're going to read through chapter 5, verse 1 here in a moment. If you don't have a Bible with you, Um, You can do one of two things. You can grab one on that back table right around that corner. I would encourage you to pull one up on your phone. This would be true every week. But I just want to remind us in light of this week, we are going to be walking verse by verse through a passage that you will benefit most fully by seeing and not just hearing. So I want to encourage you to have your Bible out in front of you and to follow along this morning. Church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just As at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. May God bless the preaching of His Word. Dr. Thomas Kidd is a university professor and a well-respected historian who teaches and writes on American history. His area of expertise and his emphasis is on the founding of our nation, including the founding fathers. 
And he's written a lot on the role religion has played in American life. What I love about Dr. Kidd, outside of being a very well-respected historian, he is an evangelical Christian whom I respect and trust. And over the years, Dr. Kidd has written a number of books that I have had the privilege to read. And his latest biography, or his latest book, is a biography that I am currently reading, and it is on Thomas Jefferson. Now, you may be thinking, why write another biography on Thomas Jefferson? He's one of those guys like Lincoln and Washington. Do we really need another one? Well, there's a reason that Dr. Kidd wrote this biography, and it wasn't simply to write another one. He had a specific aim. There is a specific aim in reason and in writing this story about Jefferson's life. And Dr. Kidd states his reason in the very beginning of his book. On page one, Dr. Kidd writes, This is a biography of a brilliant but troubled person. Thomas Jefferson would seem to need no introduction. Yet among the founding fathers, he is the greatest enigma and the greatest source of controversy. Most of the controversy about him comes back to the questions of his character. For example, how could the author of the Declaration of Independence, who said that everyone was created equal, keep hundreds of human beings in bondage? He goes on to say on page two, the reason he clearly wrote this biography. He says, Thomas Jefferson, a biography of spirit and flesh, which is this book, He said, it tells the story with special attention to the man's dissonant beliefs and actions. That word dissonant is a word that comes from music. It means when two things are sounding at the same time that don't go together. They don't sound harmonious. You hear one and you hear the other and say, oh, yeah, that that doesn't go together. And he's saying Thomas Jefferson's life is like that. Outside of what he just mentioned about a man who not only wrote the words of the Declaration, he actually in his writing, was very much against slavery, but he did nothing in his own lifetime to release his over 200 slaves. He never worked for abolition. That's not the only thing that makes him a man. You go, okay, that, that doesn't make sense. He, As Dr. Kidd says, he is an enigma. He was a man that politically believed in being conservative fiscally. He, he, he argued that the, that the nation should not spend more than it has. Yet, if you know anything about his life, he died in millions of dollars of debt. He lived way beyond his means. He spent his money on a lot of things he did not need. He had houses he did not need. He could not pay his debtors and died in debt. He was another. Here's another thing that was making an enigma. Thomas Jefferson was influenced by the Enlightenment and higher criticism. And therefore, he didn't believe in anything the Bible would say that is important about our saving faith. He rejected the Trinity, the deity of Christ, all those things. But yet he wasn't an atheist. He was a providentialist who, though he would say he didn't believe the Bible was God's word, he read it every day faithfully. It makes you scratch your head and say, how, how could he do that? But there's a greater question That we should ask when looking at Thomas Jefferson's life or lives like this man. What should we do with conflicted men like this? Is there anything to learn from them? But Dr. Kidd goes on to say this a little bit later in his introduction. Yes, there is. 
There's something to learn from these men. He says, I would argue that Jefferson and the founders remain valuable and even essential subjects of study in spite of their manifest flaws. Instead of renaming schools and toppling statues, I propose that we instead ponder perplexing hard truths about the American founding. He says, time-bound, self-interested men framed the world's most enduring republic on the bedrock of the slave owner Jefferson's glorious principle that all men are created equal. These paradoxes warrant sober reflection and further study. And he ends the paragraph like this. The founders, including Jefferson, were hardly pristine saints. But maybe we're not either. (laughs) I started reading this biography just a few weeks ago. And as I read the introduction, I was immediately reminded of the letter of Galatians. You see, in the same way that Thomas Jefferson was an enigma, a man who said certain things and then turned around and did the opposite. In the same way Jefferson is an enigma, so are the saints in Galatia. They are an enigma. If you've been following along, if you've been paying attention over these last few months as we've made our way through this letter, there are so many times we're left scratching our heads. Now, why do I say that the saints in Galatia are an enigma? Though they professed faith in Christ, and get that, it's very important that we not miss that. As far as we know, Paul never gives us the clue that they went from Judaism to believing in Christ to rejecting Christ and going back to Judaism. They continue to profess faith in Christ, yet they begin to adopt beliefs and practices that are opposite of what they profess to believe. And it leaves you scratching your head. It's one of those enigmas again. How how can you... It it makes sense if you say, I believed in Christ, now I don't. I'm going back to these ways. They continue to say, yes, Jesus is Lord. The cross brought us salvation. And yet they turn around and say, yeah, but you need the law too. You go, that's opposite of everything you're you're saying. And though they profess, though these Galatians profess faith in Christ and therefore were, were free from the slavery of sin and law-keeping, as we've seen throughout this letter, these Galatian believers have chosen to return to the bondage of law-keeping again. Though they're free, they've returned back to law-keeping. And once again, it leaves you scratching your head. Now, can I press home this truth to us this morning? If we read Galatians with self-reflection and humility, we will most likely recognize that we too can be an enigma just like the Galatians. See, this book doesn't do us any good if we look at the Galatians and think, these are some messed up people. I'm glad I'm not like them. It's kind of like the point Thomas Kidd was making with Thomas Jefferson. If if, if the only thing we can do with people is tear down their statues and rename schools after them if they're not perfect, then, then we don't realize they're, they're, they're just like us. There's inconsistencies. There's dissonance in our own beliefs. And we are just like the Galatians. We can profess faith in Christ, but live in such a way that it appears we're not free and forgiven. There's often many times 
where we will profess, yes, I'm in Christ. Yes, I'm forgiven. Yes, I'm free. But then struggle with doubts, assurance of our salvation, wondering if God really loves us, if we've done enough to merit His favor. See, we can be an enigma too. Friends, the focus of this text this morning is on the freedom we have in Christ and what that means to stand firm in that freedom. As Paul closes out this section and begins a new one, he, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This passage this morning is telling us there is a freedom we have in Christ. If you've put your faith in Christ and you've been united to Him, you are free. And the call of this text is to stand firm in that freedom. That's the single aim of this passage that the Apostle Paul skillfully labored to get across. And he does so in three steps. If you're taking notes this morning, here's our outline. We see in verse 21 an introduction. In verses 22 through 27, interpretation. In verses 28 through chapter 5, verse 1, application. That's our outline this morning. Introduction, interpretation, application. Let's begin with verse 21, this introduction. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Notice how Paul begins this new section of the letter. He begins with a question. A question that, that, that's meant to cause the reader to stop and to ponder whether they are really paying attention to what God has revealed in His Word. That's what he means by asking this question to the Galatians. And, 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 and this passage this morning wasn't just for the Galatians then, it's for us today to stop and ponder this question. Are we really paying attention to what God has revealed in His Words. Those opening lines tell me that Paul says. It's just another way of saying, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. And he goes on to ask him this question. You see, because those whom Paul was writing were so fixated on the law of God, meaning the Mosaic covenant, he asked them to consider if they've really listened to God's law. Now, at first, this may seem redundant. If you've been here throughout this series, you think, yeah, but didn't Paul already address that? Didn't he already tell these Galatian believers, hey, if you really want to live by the law, don't you understand what the law does? Don't you understand that the law condemns? It doesn't. So is he just doing that again? And the answer is no. I don't believe that Paul is just asking them, if you want to believe the law, then understand what the law does. I believe he's doing something different here. I believe the second use of the word law at the end of verse 21 is being used in a broader way to speak of all of Scripture and not just the Mosaic Law. So you could say it like this, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to all of the law, all of Scripture? And why do I say that? Because look at what happens next. For it is written. And he goes on to quote from Genesis. And then in verse 27, for it is written, pointing back to Scripture. Verse 30, for what does the Scripture say? See, in essence, Paul is saying that those who claim to love the law, the Mosaic law, 
They've not paid careful enough attention to the broader placement of the law within the whole of Scripture. This isn't a new argument. Paul's already made this. You remember earlier when he, he helped these in Galatia who were putting so much emphasis on the Mosaic law, and he was saying, which one came first, Abrahamic or the Mosaic? And he's helping them understand, you're taking the law out of context. Well, once again, he's coming back to that. Don't you understand how the law fits in in all of Scripture? And, and the, the point is, no, they don't. This is instructive for us. Because the root problem in Galatia had to do with wrong interpretation of Scripture and with wrong application of Scripture. If you're wondering, how how could these folks who heard the Apostle Paul preach a gospel, they believe this gospel, they put their faith in Christ, and less than a year, they have these false teachers come in, open up the same Scriptures, and say, no, everything Paul's saying is not absolutely true. Yes, you need to believe in Christ, and you need to do this. How in the world could this happen? The answer is wrong interpretation of Scripture and wrong application of Scripture got them there. It is imperative, not just that we read our Bible, but that we rightly interpret our Bible and rightly apply the Bible. You see, misinterpretation and wrong application of Scripture always hinders our freedom in Christ. If we want to be free in Christ, then we must rightly interpret Scripture. And we must rightly apply Scripture. And that was not what was happening in Galatia. The reason these folks were where they were at and in such danger is they were listening to people using the same Bible, but they were misinterpreting it and misapplying it. And Paul says, you want to stand firm in your freedom? First thing to do is you got to get the Scriptures right. You got to get what they say and how they apply right. And that's why Paul painstakingly explains the meaning of a very, very crucial story in the history of Israel in verses 22 through 27. So that's what Paul's doing here in verses 22 through 27. He, he's taking a story that would have been central to the life of Israel and he is interpreting this story so they understand what a right interpretation looks like. And then. He applies that passage and that interpretation directly to the Galatians in verses 28 through the first verse of chapter 5. That's what's happening in this passage. Paul asks him this question. Now he's going to turn around, take a very important, well-known story. He's going to interpret it rightly, most likely opposite of the way. There's a good chance that the false teachers were using the same story wrongly. He's going to say, no, no, let me tell you how it's really read. Let me tell you how it's really applied. He's going to turn around. He's going to interpret it. Then he's going to apply it. So let's look at the interpretation. Verses 22 through 27. Look look with me at verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Those words that begin verse 22. It is written they, that, that's Scripture's way of always referencing Scripture. So Paul here is referencing Scripture by saying, it is written. And what's he referring to in Scripture? He's referring to Genesis 16-21. through He's going back to a foundational story in the life of Israel. 
Remember, Paul has been using the example of Abraham many, many times. Well, now he's going back to that narrative of Abraham and he's, he's picking apart one more section. You see, in Genesis 16 through 21, we read about the two sons of Abraham. Those two sons are Isaac and Ishmael. And not only do we discover that Abraham had these two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, they are both born from two different mothers. So there's two sons, two mothers. Who are those mothers? Sarah and Hagar. Now, Sarah's name's never referenced in this passage. She's only spoken of as a free woman. Hagar's name is mentioned here in this passage. But most importantly, she's also always referred to as a slave woman, because Genesis tells us that's who she was. Paul is just stating from Genesis what her relation was. One was his wife, Sarah. Hagar was his bondservant. Now, Paul's purpose in retelling this story and interpreting it the way he does is instructive. You see, the primary reason for turning to this story about Abraham's two sons and the two women who bore them was to do something very, very important that got at the heart of what was going on in Galatians. By pointing to the two sons and by pointing to the two women, Paul is distinguishing between Christians and Judaism. And even more particular, he is distinguishing between those who preach the gospel of Jesus and those who preach another gospel. He's using this example from Genesis 16 through 21 about Abraham and his two sons and the two women, Hagar and Sarah, to say, this is a great example from the Old Testament that has a bearing for today. Now look again at verses 22, and this time I want to read into verse 23. Paul writes, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. If you recall, after God chose Abraham to be the father of his people, God said, I'm going to start a people. I'm going to bless these people so that they can then be a blessing to the world. But I'm going to begin a family that's going to become a nation that are going to become My people. God starts with this man who at the time was named Abram, who becomes Abraham. And he promised this man and his wife, Sarah, that they would bear a son. But there's one problem. Sarah is barren and she's very old and Abraham is very old. So humanly speaking, this is impossible. Thanks for making such a promise, God. Uh, we, we hate to inform you with the details, but uh, that's not going to work. I'm barren. I'm old. And Abraham is old too. So what did Abraham and Sarah do? After years of waiting on this promise and not seeing this promise fulfilled, they decided to do what we can often be tempted to do. They decided to assist God as if God needed their assistance. They came up with the idea for Abraham to sleep with his wife, with his slave Hagar. And he did 
And she bore a son to Abram. And his name was Ishmael. But even though he was born of Abraham, he was not the son of promise. You see, God had not forgotten his promise, though it took so long for him to do it. Nor did God need anyone's assistance. Over time, after, after actually a very long time, from the time God made the promise to the time it would be fulfilled, God did a work in Sarah and she became pregnant and she bore a son. And her son's name was Isaac. And even though both of these sons were children of Abraham, get this, this is important to see what Paul's doing. Both of them are children of Abraham, but one is born of a slave woman and is the result of human intervention. So both of these sons, Isaac and Ishmael, are both children of Abraham, but one was born of a slave woman and was born due to human intervention. The other son was born to a free woman. And his birth occurred because of supernatural intervention. Do you get the point Paul's making here? He's saying just because someone is a descendant of Abraham or just because someone becomes part of the people of God by law-keeping, that doesn't make them a child of promise. Paul's made this point many times, even in Romans 9 and other places. He says, just because you're a descendant of the Jews doesn't make you a child of Abraham. That's the point. He's, that's, now, can you see why he's pointing to, to Abraham and Sarah's children? He's saying, hey, Abraham had two sons, but one of them was the son of promise, the other was not. And There are many today, as Paul's addressing them, he's saying to them, there are many today who may be of Abraham's descent, but, or they're law keepers, but they are not children of promise. Who is children? Who are those that are children of promise? Those who put their faith in Christ. Now you may be thinking, hasn't Paul already made this point back in chapter 3? Didn't he say that in chapter 3, verse 7, and chapter 3, verse 9? Only those who have faith are children of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. Is, he just, is this another one of those places where Paul's being redundant? No. Paul's continuing this line of thought, but he's adding a new element to it. Notice what he's doing. One commentator says this, in Galatians 3, 7, through chapter 4, verse 7, we might say Paul's concern is with paternity. Is Abraham your father? But in this passage, Paul's concern is not with paternity, but maternity. Now he's saying it's not just the question, who is your daddy? <laughs> but who's your mother? Is Hagar or Sarah? Then he goes on in verse 24 to kind of begin to tweak this idea and, 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 and to bring it into focus. Why is he talking about this story? Well, he tells us at the beginning of verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. So now Paul's turning around, he tells that story, and he says, now, he, here, here's what we should do with it. Now, it's very important that we not read and imply things into allegory in our understanding of allegory that Paul's not meaning. The word allegory here just means Paul saying, I'm, fig I'm speaking figuratively. 
I'm, I'm using something as in a way of an example. I want to get across to you those who know the Old Testament, who look to Abraham, who would love that story. I'm using this story as a great example to make the case that I've been making all throughout this letter. So he uses this example of Sarah and Hagar, but we're not to read more into it than that. Well, how's he using it as an example? Well, he tells us. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Oh, now we see what you're doing, Paul. Okay, you're using these two women to stand for two different covenants. You see, Sarah and Hagar illustrate the difference between these two covenants that Paul has been addressing. But instead of stating both of these covenants here, notice what Paul does. He focuses on one. He focuses on the Mosaic covenant that's associated with Mount Sinai where the law was given. So did you hear that? He says there's two covenants. You would expect him to say something about the Mosaic and then turn around and say something about the second. He never says anything about the second. He just focuses in for a moment on the first. And he finishes verse 24 by by explaining this one covenant that is so central to the Galatians. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now what what in the world... Okay, Paul, you're you're using this in, in, in a metaphorical, symbolic way. How would you connect these who are teaching the law a law gospel with with Hagar for two reasons. Just like Hagar, a slave, when she bore a child to Abraham, he was still a slave. And the Mosaic law did not free God's people from slavery. It just showed them how enslaved they were to their sin. So these people that are looking to the Mosaic law, he's saying, it's like, it's like Hagar's children. At the end of the day, they may be born to Abraham, they're still a slave. Mosaic law never had that purpose. But there's a second reason he's comparing the two. Just like Hagar represents what it looks like to, to try to receive the promise by human effort instead of by faith. He's saying, isn't that what all these false teachers are doing? They're just like Hagar and Abraham. Oh God, you made us a promise? We'll we'll, we'll get it done by human effort. And he's saying, that's what these folks are doing. That's what they're teaching you. Then in verse 25, he, he takes it one step further. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. You see, those who preached another gospel, one other than the one that Paul preached, a gospel based on law-keeping, they represent the kind of religion that was being promoted by many in Jerusalem. And this must have been shocking. Because Paul's saying, many of those who are in Jerusalem, you look to, not all, but many of those in Jerusalem who are the epitome of everything you would want to hold to, they're Hagar's children. Everybody said, whoa, Paul. He said, yeah, that's Hagar's children. Just because they're in Jerusalem, just because they're law-keeping, they're not free. 
They're slaves. And then he makes a contrast in verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. Notice the contrast between verses 25 and 26. This is where you can start seeing, though, Paul never does come back and say anything about the second covenant. He's, he's obviously talking about that here. He's, he's comparing these two things. There's an earthly Jerusalem. There's a heavenly Jerusalem. There's slavery and there's freedom. And there are these two covenants. See, without stating it explicitly, Paul seems to be referencing in verse 26 those who, have, who are under the Abrahamic covenant that's been now fulfilled in Christ. See, those who've placed their faith in Christ, they've experienced a spiritual birth, and therefore they're citizens of a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. Yes, there are many in Jerusalem who were born descendants of Abraham, and they're law keepers, but they haven't experienced a spiritual birth. And their citizenship is a mountain. In the Middle East. But he's saying to these believers in Galatians. Your citizenship. Is in the heavenly Jerusalem. There's a difference. Between the two. Then he brings us back to scripture again. For it is written. Rejoice O barren woman. Who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. You who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one. Will be more than those of the one. Who has a husband. Pay careful attention to how Paul rounds out this section of interpretation. Paul's finishing this section on interpretation. And he ends it the way he began it. He began with, it is written. He ends with, it is written. He quotes scripture again. But this time he fast forward from Genesis to Isaiah. From the beginning of Israel's birth. To the time of their exile. Now why does he do this? What point is Paul making by quoting from Isaiah 54 verse 1? Well, He's making the same point he just made above. He's just using another passage of scripture. And a different place in the timeline of Israel's history to say listen. No matter where you go in the Old Testament scriptures. It's still the same story. There's no different story. So what point is Paul making? In the same way. That Sarah was barren and therefore the promise made to Abraham appeared to be null and void. Well, after Israel was taken into exile in Babylon. She becomes like a barren woman. Not simply because of her diminished population. But because she had so few spiritual children. By the time of the exile, you look around. There are lots of descendants of Abraham, but there are not many children of promise. Why? How could Israel give birth to, to children of promise after so many years of spiritual idolatry and spiritual adultery? That's how the prophets put it. What Israel was doing was not just idolatry. It was adultery. So if you're an Israelite, you're a faithful Israelite at the end. The reason God's people ended up in exile in Babylon is because of their adultery. It's because of their spiritual idolatry. And they look around and they say, how in the world are we not going to end up in exile again? There's so few spiritual children. 
And the point being made here in Isaiah that Paul is landing on is that God made a promise to Israel like He did Abraham and Sarah. That He would intervene and cause Israel to bear children of promise. Friends, God has always been the cause of the birth of His children. That's the story of the Old Testament. And it continues to be the story today. Those who are born of God. As the Apostle John tells us in chapter 1. It's not because of flesh. It's not by the will of man. They are born of God. God has done it. That has always been the story. So now Paul applies this. Thank you for your patience. I know this is a longer text than usual. I know there's a lot of explaining to do. But it's important that we understand how all of this is, is stated and explained because everything after this and through chapter 5 and to chapter 6 requires us to understand the point that Paul's making here. Now he's going to apply it. Verse 28. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Don't, don't miss the significance of that statement. Did you hear what he just told the church in Galatia? And get this, the church in Galatia appears to be made up primarily, if not exclusively, of Gentiles. <laughs> he just said many in Jerusalem who are descendants of Abraham, who keep the law, are Hagar's children, and you Gentiles who don't keep the law, well, you have a brother and his name is Isaac. You're like Isaac. You are children of promise. Why? Because they put their faith in Christ, not in the effort of man. And then he goes on in verse 29 to just take that story and go one step further and apply it to their specific situation. Verse 29, But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now, what, what, is, what, what does that mean? Do you remember the story? Do you recall what Ishmael eventually did to Isaac? At some point he realized, oh, I was born first. And he begins to taunt him. Paul says it wasn't just him making fun. It wasn't just brotherly like, you know, I'm stronger than you. You don't have muscles. You know, I can beat you up. I'm better at basketball. No, he, Paul says he's persecuting him. So much so that eventually Abraham had to remove Hagar and Ishmael out of his household. Oh, the irony. <laughs> the child born of a slave and born according to the flesh is persecuting the child of promise, the child born by the Spirit and by faith. And Paul says, Galatians, what you are experiencing, what I've experienced, it goes back to Abraham. It's not unique. This has been happening for a long time. See, Paul applies this story to the situation in Galatia. See, those who are children of God by the Spirit of God will face persecution from those who think they're children of God because of their efforts 
and obedience. See, there will at times be people who will persecute you because of your faith in Christ. Not simply because they're outsiders or unbelievers. They may quote the Bible, they may believe in the Bible, and they may say, I live a holier life than you. But they're not children of promise. And you are. There will always be that tension and that struggle. So what must God's people do? Well, Paul goes back to that story again in verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. What, what does he mean by that? Once again, Paul's using that story and said, what did Abraham eventually do? He said, you can't stay here any longer. Now, is Paul just basically saying, kick out these false teachers? Well, that's implied, but I think he's saying more than that. He's saying to them, in the same mindset, you must reject any other gospel or any sort of mentality that causes you to forget who you are by faith. And who are you by faith? Verse 31. Brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. See, if you belong to Christ Jesus, you've been united to Him through faith and repentance, you must not. I must not. As a church, we must not forget who we are. We are children of God, children of promise, and get that, get this, because of that, we're free. We're free. Listen to then how Paul ends this section. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let, let those opening words of verse 1, chapter 5, land on you. We can read past it too quickly or miss it thinking, well, Paul, that doesn't really make sense. Of course, for freedom, he set us free. No, do you hear what Paul's saying? It's not just how did you get free? Well, Christ died to set you free. But get this. Why did He set you free? You would expect Paul to say, He set you free for the glory of God. He set you free for fill in the blank. Paul said, He set you free so you could be free. He set you free so you could live in the good of that freedom. That's why He set you free. Therefore, your freedom in Christ shapes your identity. It shapes my identity. If we are in Christ, we are free. And that determines who we are. Not anyone else. Because Christ has set us free. Therefore, anything that threatens or compromises our freedom in Christ must be rejected. And that's how Paul ends this section. He says, because you are free and Christ died to set you free, here's what you must do. Stand firm and don't submit to a yoke of slavery. 
I don't believe those are two separate actions. I believe they are the same thing, just one stated positively and one stated negatively. How do you stand firm? Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery that these guys that have come in opening up the same Scripture saying, God demands this of you. Wrong! You're free. You are free. And you stand firm in that. Don't you let anybody else tell you differently. We are to stand firm in that freedom and not submit again to the yoke of slavery. How do we do that? Well, the rest of chapter 5 and 6 is going to spell that out. It's going to help us understand that freedom. It's going to help us understand what that freedom doesn't mean. Because we could be tempted to think, whoa, 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 free. That, that sounds like we can just do whatever. But Paul's going to address all those things. We're going to get there. So where do we end today? I think we can rush to application in the sense of, okay, okay, what do, what do we do? How, how do we stand firm? How do we not submit? What, give, give me three steps. Give me a plan. Tell me how to do this. Here's what we're to do. We're to live out our faith in union with Christ. Christ has set us free. So do you know what we're to do to stand firm and to not submit? We're not just to come across with another list of things to do. Okay, this is is how I not submit. This is how I stand firm. We live out our faith in Christ. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That is the foundation to freedom. It's not just rejecting the law. It's not just saying, oh, well, well, you're saying that's what Scripture says and you're binding me there. Yeah, Paul's going to get to that. He's going to get to some of the things that are happening. He's going to get to the particulars. But he first begins and ends right here. And it's where we must begin and end today. How do we stand firm? And how do we not submit? We must live out our faith. In union with Christ. We belong to Him. That means we must read Scripture and apply Scripture in light of the Gospel and in light of our union with Christ. And we must every day seek to better know, love, enjoy, and celebrate our Savior. And if anything or anyone is telling us to do opposite than what our Savior would tell us, we say, no, thank you. I'm standing firm in the one who died for me, rose again, and has set me free. So let's leave here today with a greater desire 
to know our Savior. Not just our Savior as the one who died and paid for our sins, but the one who right now we're called to live out our faith in. Wish we had more time this morning to get into the particulars, but what does that mean to live in light of our union with Christ? Here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you to think about that and to pray about that. What does that actually mean? That you have, you're, you're dead. When Christ died, you died, and now you live by faith in Him. Is that how you live your Christian life? Is that how you read your Bible? How much does union with Christ affect every word you read in the Bible? And do you read every word in the Bible as a restriction that binds you or as a gift that sets you free? Because if you would say, I think the Bible is just filled with a whole bunch of commands that are restrictive. Then you're missing the point of the Bible. The Bible is free. Frees us from sin. Slavery to sin. And allows us to know our God. Let's pray together and ask the Lord now to apply what we've heard to our hearts. Oh Lord. We don't want to just hear this message. We, we want to know what it's like to, to live in the good of it. We can't do that by just walking away with a few steps and a few application points. So Lord, would you write this truth on our hearts and would you help us today and throughout the week and in the days ahead as we continue to make our way through Galatians, would you show us what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to live in light of our union with Christ? And Lord, would you reveal to us as individuals and to us as a church, are there any things that we are submitting to that are, that are not what you're calling us to submit to? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for setting us free. Lord, we just give you the glory for all that you've done. May we live now in the good of it and go now and tell others about it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.